Welcome to Drunken PM Radio. Today I have Troy Lightfoot with me and I'm very excited because I talk about Troy in all the classes that I teach because he's the person I know that has the most experience working with high-performing teams and I, <laughs> that's not something I have a ton of experience with. <laughs> Thank you for taking time out of your night. Oh, no problem. It's a pleasure. Um, so we're going to get to some questions that have been submitted by some folks and talk about some other stuff that Troy's working on. But before we do that, Troy, can you tell these people who you are? So my name is Troy. I'm a, and I consider myself an agile coach. I work at um, portfolio program and team level. So pretty much um, maybe jack of all trades, master of none. I don't know, <laughs> but I, but I do have exposure at uh, all the levels of coaching so far at, at uh, enterprise and startup. And just to give the folks some frame of reference, we just ran through a bunch of topics to talk about in the podcast and half of the things you're working on, I don't know anything about at all. So <laughs> deeply schooled in this stuff. All right. Fair and enough. you're also part of a very important group. Yes. Yeah, so I'm part of a group called the Agile Uprising. We are a purpose-driven nonprofit uh, organization who just believes in uh, community and uh, the Agile community and spreading information for free, and we don't charge anything, and there's no certification for anything, and we also have a podcast. Which as is well awesome. As, <laughs> thank you. As well, as, and you can hear me on some of the episodes as well, as well as um, a coalition, which is basically just like an online forum, which you can come and uh, participate for free. You can ask questions, you can answer questions, you can, everything is totally free. So that's our mission. It's really just about community, education, learning from one another, um, and trying to get out of the industry side of it. Okay. So based on my experience with the guys that are part of the uprising, and you're all very smart, very advanced guys with lots of experience with this stuff. If somebody that's listening to this is kind of new and they wade into the waters of the online environment, are they going to, I mean, is it, is it a place for new people to come or do you have to be more experienced kind of when you're going into this stuff? Oh, totally. Uh, beginners are welcome. Experts are welcome. Uh, and in fact, just because you're a beginner, just because you're new to it, doesn't mean that you can't teach an expert something. Expert just means that they've been doing it a while, but that sometimes that means that people can have blinders on as well. So yeah, uh, we, we welcome um, any, any opinions, ideas. Uh, if it's your first day working in an agile team organization, that's totally fine. In fact, that's the type of people we want because we feel like you know, we can help. Um, and, and it's free. So. Cool. And then people can go on there and ask how to create their Gantt chart for their scrum team. Yeah. And I don't know what the reception <laughs> of that's going to be, but, uh, <laughs> but you can ask it. And, and, Powerful and, and swift, I would imagine. <laughs> no, but, but we have a, like an, it's a no judgment zone. So, uh, you know, even if you ask that question, that's fine. Uh, and you'll get a response. So, and, and it, it hopefully won't be very snarky. I'm just kidding. It should not be snarky. So uh, it, it should be a safe place. Cool. All right. And so if people want to find out about it, where, where's, where should they go? It's, um, well, two places. One is just agileuprising.com and that you can get there a lot of information um, from our podcast to, to blogs. We have a blog as well, which I've written a few blog posts for. And um, our coalition is coalition.agileuprising.com. Okay, cool. Um, all right, thank you for doing that. And now we're going to start wading into the topic. So we went through this list of stuff that Troy's working on and one of them, I had no idea what it was. So we're going to start out by talking about probabilistic forecasting and probably go into a couple other areas, but 
what is probabilistic forecasting? Okay, so probabilistic forecasting is the ability to answer the question, when will it be done, or how much will be done by when, without guessing. That's what okay. it is. <laughs> okay. yeah. So how would you, so, so let's, I guess, start out with the, the old way of doing things. The old way of doing things, we make the list of all the stuff we have to do. We go ask people how long everything's going to take. We put it all in sequence. We plan it all out and we say, this is when stuff's going to be done. Then we move into agile and teams are prioritizing the backlog and estimating the stuff in the backlog. And based on our previous story points or however it is we're tracking the work, that's what we used to kind of forecast when we think stuff's going to be done. We are still guessing at the future based on the past, but you're talking about something that's a little bit different than that. Yes. So using, so the traditional agile way of doing this is these story points, as you said, and you would essentially look at your average story points over a given period of time and you would extrapolate out and say, okay, well, if we have this many story points um, for this, uh, you know, large initiative, roughly, and we get done this many story points per sprint, then it should take us roughly eight to nine sprints to do this, whatever the initiative is, feature, epic, whatever you want to call it. Okay. So, um, and that's your traditional way. And it, people that have been working in that, um, probably you have seen it can work, but it's not very scientific. And, and often it, it's usually not correct. And the reason for that is um, there's a gentleman named Dan Vacanti, who I'm a big fan of. And um, he has a quote in one of his books. Uh, the book is called When Will It Be Done? And he says that um, forecasts based on averages fail on average. <laughs> so, okay. So, uh, and that's actually mathematically true. He proves it in the book. So if you're interested in that, you can read that book. It's called When Will It Be Done? And it's all about probabilistic forecasting and things like that. So, um, so essentially, if you're going to forecast... Uh, using averages, it's, it's on average, it's that forecast is going to be wrong. That's what the, that's what the gist is. But isn't that so, kind of like, if you talk about, for one second, before we go yeah. more into the teams, like if we look at sports or anything like that, that's what we're working off of. Batting averages uh, okay. or whatever, anything like that, right? Yeah, so what does, like, this is just a general sports question, but what does, uh, what somebody, what their batting average last year, how does that forecast out to how it will be next year? Well, it doesn't, but, but how else would yeah. you do it? Like, how do we say how well Bryce Harper is going to do whenever he comes out of his slump? The only thing we can compare it to is what he did last year. Yes, but here's the difference. What he did last year is quantifiable data. What we're doing with, um, with story points is qualitative data, meaning it's, it's not actual quantifiable. They're just, they're basically made up numbers. Okay. So but if the same people are making yeah. them up then, aren't they? Yes, but how easy, how easy is it to game those things? So okay. that's a, there's a, quite a few things wrong with it. Okay. One is, one is one team versus another team that could be totally different, right? The scale. Yes. Two, then you could say, okay, well, then we're going to baseline into all teams at the same scale. Well, then we're just only oh, back. That's bad. Yeah. Well, this is the safe way of doing things. Okay. <laughs> so basically then, then you get back into the natural thing. Well, okay, then a point equals eight hours or whatever, right? So then it's like we get back into, we're just almost defeating the point of what we're trying to accomplish. Okay. So there's one thing about that, about story points. There's nothing inherently wrong with using story points. I'm not suggesting that. I'm suggesting that there's another way, and in my opinion, a better way. 
Okay, so um, I want to get to that in a second, but before we do that, just in case there's people listening who don't know what story points are and don't understand how Safe's way of estimating is slightly different than traditional story points, how would you describe a story point? Oh, okay, so a story point is a relative estimate of uh, efforts um, and complexity and risk. So it's like, okay, well, you have one, one piece of work and you're comparing it to another piece of work and how much effort is it compared and how much complexity and risk is it? And is it two times more? Is it three times more? Is it roughly the same? And based on off of that, you'll say, well, the smallest thing is a one and this thing is two times more than that. So it's a two and by any out of extrapolation, typically people use um, a Fibonacci sequence or a, or a modified Fibonacci sequence, okay. uh, which is like a, one, two, three, five, eight, 13, 20, 40, 100, which is not the actual Fibonacci sequence, but it's just a way to bucket things. Mike Cohn version. Yes, pretty much. Yeah, that's the standard way. All right. And, and the, the issue with having all the teams kind of normalize on that is we want every team to be able to come up with its own version of what a story point is so they can own the work. Yeah. So the reason why you would normalize it, meaning you, you want the teams to use the same relative scale is because if you have eight teams working together and you have to plan out releases and you have to plan out um, coordination of dependencies and things like that, it's really difficult if people are using different scales. Yeah. Meaning if I call a two something and your team calls a two and it's like your two is an eight for me and it, it really is really hard to coordinate that way. Yeah. When you have okay. That. Yeah. All right. So there's a, there's a logical reason for why that is, why they do that. So I'm not arguing that. Okay. <laughs> so, but there's a lot of people out there who don't like story points and rather just go back to time. And I want to just check in with you on this. Do you agree that just switching back to time would be not preferable to story points because you're totally bailing on the complexity and the risk? So here's what I like to do. So there's okay. a, um, there is a set of story point, uh, I'm sorry, planning poker cards, and I'll, I'll send you the, the link to it. I, I purchased them because I think they're fun. And okay. essentially, um, this, the name is escaping me off the top of my head, but um, the, of the company who makes them. But basically, what they are is, here's the cards, right? It says, it's either a one, or it's two, they call it too freaking big, or you can buy a clean version and a dirty one. <laughs> so it's kind of funny, but uh, there's like two, two, two freaking big, right? Or there's no freaking clue, right? Okay. So, so you only get three you, cards. You get three cards. You get a one, two freaking big, or no freaking clue. So you go around and you play playing poker, right? And people basically, you it always ends up being a one because what will happen is if you think it's too big, right? Yeah. And and I and somebody else doesn't have a clue, and there's if somebody puts a one out then we can't use the number until everyone puts a one out. So that means that everyone has to understand that we've broken it down to small possible and that we all understand that this problem, right, as a team. So essentially, it's making everything a one. If you do that, then yes, different things are going to be different sizes, but you'll always do your due diligence to make stories as small as possible. And then when you do that, it starts to become less and less important over time. Because what's really the difference between a one, two, and a three? Not that much. And right. take a normal Fibonacci scale. But but this would require, I mean, my experience has been that when teams start doing this kind of estimation, that one of the hardest things for them to do is to break the work down into small pieces of work. Like I usually say two to three days. I know Ron and Chet would say by the end of the day. Um, 
But figuring out how to split the work down is really challenging. And if we're talking about getting everything down to a one, that's really thin vertical slices, right? Yes, but here's the thing. Let, let me back up. Okay. Not everything is going to be a one in the sense of if we were using a modified Fibonacci. Okay. Meaning all the one means is we have broken this down to as small as we can possibly make it. That's all. Right? So, or, or one just yeah. means it's neither too freaking big or I have no freaking clue. Yes. Okay. So that means it's a manageable size to do in a relatively short amount of time. And okay. On that one. Now, it's not required to do probabilistic forecasting, but I do feel it helps for teams to break things down and get common understanding. Okay. So then, here's how probabilistic forecasting. Wait, hold on. We didn't do the safe yeah. part yet. We have to do that. Okay. <laughs> okay. Go we're going we're gonna to keep backing up until we can go forward. So, okay. How does the safe way of estimating work differ from a regular story point approach? So save by the book save tells you to, when you're first starting out, to take um, um, a story point. Wait, it's been so long because I, I try to get away from this, but oh yeah. Uh, so it's like eight man hours is, is a story point, basically, right. like a day. Okay. okay. So then if you have eight people on your team, right, uh, then you basically you have one working day is like eight points. Okay. Makes sense? Yep. So that's, that's the way they break it down. Um, I hate that. So I actually try to remove it from my brain. But that's another thing. <laughs> uh, so an another way of doing it, um, which I prefer, is, uh, well, let me back up. Once you have an established philosophy, <laughs> once you have an established philosophy for a team, once it's not a new team anymore, yeah. then you can use your historical philosophy. Then you don't have to use those, point, those hours things anymore because you actually have a velocity. But you... Okay. But using that hours at the beginning normalizes the whole entire algebra release string, which is basically a set of teams that are coordinated. Right? Okay. So, so it's a starting yeah. point. That's, that's what, but the problem is after a lot of teams and people keep using it, even though they already have an established philosophy, <laughs> they're still using the hours. And it's like, we don't have to use that anymore. You know? So that's one thing. The second way of doing it in a safe context, which I much rather prefer, is if you are starting off a new release train with you know a new team, what you can do is when you're in PI planning, have the people uh, do their story pointing right as they would normally would on their own, and then have the scrum masters and POs sync up right. Like let's say after you have a, a certain set of stories, and then they essentially do affinity um, estimation across those stories across the team, saying like which one, which is the smallest out of all these, and we'll talk about it right. And essentially the smallest based on the scrum master and the PO or the, or based on the estimates from the teams. Well, so you're going to compare one team's one to another team's one to another team's one. Let's say there's three teams, right? Okay. So you're going to have a conversation about which one is actually smaller, right? Or are they all about the same? If this one is clearly smaller than the other, then we've all baseline that that one is what is really a one and we're all, and then these are actually twos and that's going to be our new normal for going forward. And essentially you just coordinate that quick, way of doing it and you don't have to worry about man hours or anything like that and that's like affinity estimation okay yeah all right okay. now we can go okay. forward okay <laughs> okay so uh you want me to talk about probability forecasting yeah. at some point so all right so <laughs> uh, let, me, let me ask you this so whenever you're ready if you were to if you had to be at work right at uh, uh, 9 a.m on a monday morning right and you're job depended on it right and you really wanted that job okay <laughs> so uh you know your whole life depended on you showing up at work at 9 a.m okay and let's say you work in the middle of the city 
right? Make it more okay. complicated. And you live in the suburbs to make it even more complicated. Yeah? Okay. So how would you determine what time you have to leave your house? Now, this is just a general question, right? So would you, I'm going to ask you this, would you take an average of every trip you've ever taken to work, right? Or the last eight trips per se, or eight weeks, right? And say, you know what, on average, I get to work in 45 minutes. So therefore, I'm going to leave my house at 8.15 on the most important day. Would, you do, would, that, would that be the approach you would take? No, I would leave way earlier. Yes. And the question is why? Because you know, and as I said, that, for, that basically predicting and forecasting on averages is likely to fail. Okay. So this is what it's getting into. Okay. So, and it's, right? So, or imagine if you can plot out every trip you've ever taken to work. Okay. okay. And say, out of a thousand trips to work, let's say, right? Yeah. 95% of them happen in 56 minutes or less. Meaning okay. if we look at a thousand trips, right? 950 yeah. of them happen in 56 minutes or less. Okay. The other 5% are like outliers for the train broke down or whatever. Right. Right. Yeah. Okay. Question is, would you say, would you feel more confident using the average of 45 minutes or the 95 percentile um, of 56 minutes is a question. And then would you say, hey, to be super safe, I'm going to take all this data into account and move probably to 100% or at least 99%. Right? And whatever that data tells me, I'm going to leave my house at that time. So I'm trying to give you an analogy of this is what probabilistic forecasting is. It's plotting so, so out. I want to ask yeah. a question about it, though. Yeah, right. yeah. And I, and I think I might just be thinking about it wrong. If I know that on average it takes me 45 minutes to get to work, yes. like across a 1,000 trips or whatever, yeah. and I know that I need to, I absolutely have to be there by 9 o'clock, then that experience of seeing that the average is 45 minutes would tell me I probably need to leave an hour early or whatever to have this sort of padding for whatever crap's going to go wrong that day. Yes, but here's the thing. You're still guessing what the padding. What I'm suggesting is if you plotted out every single trip, okay, and looked at the real data for the past thousand trips, for example. Yeah. That data would tell you historically every single trip you've taken and exactly how long it was. And then you can, the, the chart, would basically tell you, imagine this, this is called a, um, a cycle time scatter plot is what I'm describing. Okay. The chart would show you with percentile lines, 85 percentile, 50, 95 percent. And what that means is 95 percent of all trips are done in this time. So okay. maybe going to work, you'd want 100 percent. But maybe if you're forecasting software, 95 percent is pretty damn good, right? Okay. So it's much better than doing it on averages based off of story points is what I'm suggesting. So here's what you do. So this works by using, uh, essentially it use, works by using cycle time. So, and you can track anything you want to forecast. So let's start explain, at the, explain what cycle time means for the folks. So cycle time is the time and item, uh, any work type you're, talk, you're talking about, uh, st first starts till it finishes. Now, you can determine what you think the start and finish parts are depending on your case, right? So for a lot of agile teams, um, a starting point would be when it first dev in progress, basically, or an analysis in progress, or whatever, the whatever the first thing to do in the sprint is, right? When somebody first starts working on it or someone, okay. right? 
Somebody assigns so, the work to themselves or the, the team kicks off the sprint. Or, yes, but not kicks off because you want it when it's first actually being worked on. Okay. So you could not work on a story in the first five days in the sprint, in an example, right? And that you oh, okay. Track I, it. I yeah. got it. Okay. Yep. So it's, so it, so let's say that the team starts the sprint four days later, they start one of the stories, right? That story is that's when it, the cycle time clock begins for that team. In the example. Got it. Then the end state is totally dependent on what your definition of done is or what you're going to consider done. So some teams right. consider def- traditional, you know, scrum back in the day would say definition of done is potentially shippable, right? Yeah. Now with the modern agile teams, you know, our definition of done could be it's in production. So, okay. Um, so that's going to be case dependent because you can, you can use things like feature toggles and put things in production, but not be turned on, but it's right. in production. Is that right? right. So, uh, there's a lot of ways to go about it. So whatever your definition of done is, is usually you're going to look at the end state, for example. Okay. So you would say, okay, so you're going to look at every single story historically. Okay. And this, there's tools for this that do everything for you automatically. So it's not like you have to do a lot of manual work. Um, although you can do it in Excel, I have an Excel sheet. Maybe we can link to a free version if you want to get started. Sure, but you um, would have to you would yeah. have to be tracking when you start the cycle and when you complete the cycle. Correct. So if you do it manually, you have to have like a Scrum Master or someone who's looking at that, right? And that um, means you're going to have to have a definition of done that creates clarity on whether we're saying the cycle ends when it's potentially releasable or when it's actually up in production. Correct, but in the tooling. If you have the correct tooling, and I'll recommend the tool that that, that I use at Client, um, I don't get anything for it, but I'll just recommend it because it's an awesome tool. <laughs> so uh, I have no like conflicts of interest there. But basically, uh, the tool is called Actionable Agile Metrics. Okay. And um, it's a standalone tool and a Jira plugin. It's both. Okay. Um, and what that allows you to do is so imagine you're using the Jira plugin, right? And if your company is using Jira, um, what you can do is it will look at uh, all of the dates when it first went into whatever column, whatever workflow state, till when it went through all the workflow states. And then you can select just by a check mark. You can say, hey, I want to know what the cycle time is from dev start to when it's in staging. And you can click that. I want to know what it's in prod. You can click that. And it'll give you the different time, different views of everything. You know? So that can help you depending on your context. You can also say, hey, I want to know when it first was that that story was first written to when it's in production, it'll tell you that too. Given so you can, it's not just dev in progress. You can customize whatever you want. But okay. I I kind of want to explain the the fundamentals before I get into the, the weeds about the tool. But that's okay. okay. All right. So um, yes. So cycle time is when an item starts to when it's finished. So we just talk about different contexts for that. So. Um, so what you would do is you would say, okay, well, let's say a team from one uh, they start something till it meets their definition of done, right? Um, so you can say, well, for a thousand stories, going back to your trip to work, right? Right. It's the same concept. Out of a thousand stories, it's going to give you a view of every story and how long every single story took, and it looks like a little star constellation, <laughs> and okay. it has it has um these percentile lines, and it'll tell you. Okay, 95% of all the stories are done in 16 days or less, right? Give an example. So now, what does that tell us? That tells us that when we take, when we take a story, we can say with 95% certainty, using real data and not guessing that we can get it done in 16 days or less, based off of historical data, without estimating. 
Okay. So then it, this, this drives a lot of good conversation because then it's like, well, why is it 16 days and not 13 days? Because we could finish in a sprint, right? Well, then how do we get it to 13 days? What do we have to do differently? And you can use this type of data to drive improvement conversations in your retros. In fact, it's one of the best, this type of uh, metrics I'm talking about. So this, so this does mean, though, that a brand new team is always going to be suffering the effects of the, the, the poor breakdown or the bad estimates they did when they were just starting to learn. There's no accounting for the fact that maybe in the last six months, it's five days instead of 16 days. Sure. You, in the tooling, you can customize any view you want. Okay. So you can select it. Say, hey, I only want to look at start stories from this, start, this starting date or whatever. Okay. So you can do that. That's fine. Um, if you do pure, if your old data is not reliable. So there's basically, um, there's a few metrics to think about. So there's cycle time, which I just described and lead time is essentially this tool does both at the same time. And that's where, well, cycle time would be when something starts to when it's finished. Lead time would be when something first came in the backlog to when it's finished. Right. You can measure that in the tool with one click. It shows you both. Give me okay. The other thing is, um, throughput. So that's, um, how many items are done in a given time period, right? Every time, not an average. So if you, if you take a scrum team, right? One of the things that I do is I say, let's look at weekly throughput because even though we might be doing two week sprints, if we can roughly get close to the same amount of stories done every week yeah. and not wait till the end of the sprint, then we can become very predictable and the sprints will become easy because then we won't be rushing in two weeks. So we focus on like weekly, right? Giving that weekly throughput. And then if you have in one week, you have two stories on, and one week you have eight, and it's all over the place, then it's hard to become predictable that way. So that's one metric. Which is um, also very I, telling if, yeah. you're the, if you're the scrum master, you're somebody working with the team, if there's that much fluctuation, I'd want to know why. Yeah, so usually the reasons why, or there's a million reasons, but one of them is um, too much whip, right? Too much work yeah. in progress. Like you have everything working in parallel, so you don't finish anything until the end. That's right. a pretty common pattern. So the third metric, and this is the last one I'll talk about, is with with work in progress. So the tooling will show you your work in progress and over time, and you can see how it's correlating with cycle time, with throughput, and have a conversation around that. Also, um, you can even you can do a lot with it. It's more than I'm talking about, but getting to the forecasting side. Well, hold on, I want to I want to yeah on one thing here for the folks. That yeah. So with the whip thing, I'm assuming that part of what you're studying there is how much slack do we need to leave in the system or, or what is the optimal amount that we can leave in the system so that we have a constant flow. We're not getting jammed up. We can handle whatever's happening. So you would want to leave some headroom there. Correct. hundred percent correct. So um, there's this book. Um, I'm just going to drop books out there for the curious. Right? So um, there's this book um, by Don Ryder thing called uh, principles of product development flow. And he, a lot of that book is about this topic. Okay. Black about flow, about how to achieve better throughput and more predictable throughput and things like that at any level. And it's like using math essentially. Okay. So um, I'll give an example. So a FedEx, right? Um, FedEx has, they do overnight delivery, obviously, and everybody knows that. So how are they able to do it? Well, if they focus, if they said, well, these planes cost us, you know, a million dollars a day, or I have no idea how much they cost but throwing out a random number, right? Okay. And if they say, oh, okay, so these planes cost us X amount of dollars a day. It's a lot of money, okay, if they're flying in the air between fuel and man hours and everything else, right? Then 
obviously we need to be 100% utilized, right? Because we're paying for these people salaries, right? So we need to be 100% utilized. We need to have packages and every plane being delivered, right? If you did that, you wouldn't be able to do overnight deliveries because the way they do overnight deliveries is they have roughly, I think it's like 30% or 25%-ish, uh, 25 to 30% of their planes flying around with nothing in them. And so when they, when they get an overnight delivery, it gives them, they have the slack in the system to be able to accomplish it because their whip isn't max, right? Okay. So one of the principles of this product development flow in this book is talking about that 30 percentile mathematically. At, once you get past 70%, your cues like start becoming exponentially stacked, like the inventory. So um, that's, that's, that's part of the process. So that answers the question, yes, you would look at your whip to determine if we reduce our work in progress, how does that affect our cycle time? It's like you can just run experiments, you know. So, and how does that affect, will that change the way we work? And how will it affect the managers who want to come and help, in quotes, help the team get faster? How will it affect them? Well, um, no, I mean, it was a rhetorical, I, I meant it yeah. in kind of a hypothetical way, but like there are all the managers out there who feel like they need to help a team optimize itself when we're really talking about the team running experiments to determine this for them for themselves without somebody else kind of armchair quarterbacking what their flow should be. 100%. So if a manager is listening, um, I would definitely recommend that book, um, two books, Principles of Product Development Flow, and um, the intro book to Probabilistic Forecasting. The, the intro book is um, Actionable Agile Metrics, and it's also the name of the tool. It's the name of the book, too. Okay. Um, and that intro book is really easy to digest and understand as opposed to the Product Development Flow, which is basically not so easy, and it's a lot more dry. Okay. So recommend starting with the, the Actionable Agile book first. Okay. So um, getting back into probability forecasting. So um, the way it works is you, you get all this cycle time and throughput and everything for all the things you're working on. And the tooling can do stories and features and bugs and epics or whatever. It can do any story, any work type you want, right? Okay. So, and then you can select all that. Too. But what you can do is the tooling runs um, something called a Monte Carlo uh, simulation. And Monte Carlo simulation is used in statistics. I'm not an expert in it, but I know how to analyze it in the tool. <laughs> so, uh, well, also keep in, keep in mind that this, this yeah. podcast is going to show up on projectmanagement.com. So I'm assuming that most of the folks listening, um, they're probably somewhat familiar with Monte Carlo because they had to study it for the PMP. There we go. So now I don't have to explain it then. Well, awesome. give it a shot on you. Let's see what happens. Give it a shot. Okay. Uh, simply put, what it does, it's, it's, a, it's a computer analysis, right, of um, your, the, the patterns of your data, right? And so it's saying, like, out of all the probabilities based off of your real data. So now we talked about having that 95 percentile line, for example, right, of data. So it's looking at that. It's looking at the different percentiles. It's looking at um, scenarios, different scenarios, and then it's running in the tool that we use. It, it has two versions. Uh, they're both, you know, there's no extra money, but the first one is 10,000 different simulations. So the computer will run 10,000 simulations based off of all your real data. And you can ask it two questions. You can say, um, I have this many stories I need to do, right? Or this many features or whatever. When will, 
what is when will this be done with what um what percentage or what forecast probability using probabilities using a monte carlo simulation and then what it will do is it will say there's a 95 with 95 percent certainty it will get done on july 1st but 85% certainty to be, be done July 17th based off the real data, okay? That's one part of it. The second part of it is you can say, okay, well, um, how many uh, things can I get done by a certain date? So if you said like, well, we have Christmas coming up, right? And in order to get this release out, okay, we have, you know, 53 stories left, right? Using the real data and no guessing, what is the probability that it'll be done by Christmas? And then his computer will tell you based off of 10,000, or and you can also select one more, and it gives you a million simulations. Uh, based off of that, what the actual percentage of probability it is that you will get done by it. And guess what that does? It takes the guessing out of it, it takes people's opinions out of it, and it just uses data. Now, what you do with that data is up to you. You can hope and pray for the 5%, Okay. <laughs> so, all right. Yeah. I want to dumb it down a little bit. Yeah. I, want to, yeah. I want to try to, because I'm feeling a little clever about this right now. So, okay. Yeah. You see the new Avengers movie? I have not, unfortunately. Okay. Well, I'm not going to spoil anything. But in, okay. in Infinity War, yeah. when Doctor Strange is looking at all the futures, there's, I just had to look this up while, while you were talking. I had to mute my microphone. 14,605,000 <laughs> scenarios. Okay. So he ran Monte Carlo simulations basically and looked at all the possible outcomes of what was going to happen and found the one that would produce the result they were looking for. Yeah. He only had one. So you're saying if I look at 14,605 scenarios, then what's probably going to happen? We're all going to die. <laughs> well, put it, put it this way. If, if you are trying to tell someone, right, a stakeholder or uh, whoever right? <laughs> or, or the market or whatever right or iron man you yeah. were trying to make a prediction <laughs> would you rather just sit in a room and guess okay or would you rather use real data run it through a million simulations in a computer and and not not that the computer's guessing the computer's just using all the real history it's not coming up with anything new right okay it's just running simulations based off of actual historical data so there's no guessing to it it's just Mathematically, 95% certainty it will happen by this date or we can get this many things done. That's all it's saying. Now, what you do with that is up to you. You could ignore that and say, we're still going to make it anyway. Probably by working a ton of overtime and burning people out and reducing quality and a lot of things, but you might hit it. <laughs> but, but at least this gives you the objective data and it takes the guesswork out of it. And also stakeholders and business people uh, I mean, outside of product development, don't probably care about story points. So, so if you ask them, you know, well, this thing is a hundred points, and 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 based off of our velocity of uh, thirty points a sprint on average, you know, we think it could be done. Or if you just say, hey, it's probably going to ninety-five percent is certain it's going to be done by Christmas. Um, are you okay with that? Based off of that, what the computer tells you. I mean, the, okay, well, like, it's really, yes, go ahead. <laughs> All right. So I want to, I want to yes. throw a wrench into this. Go so ahead. I agree with everything you said. I agree that all the math stuff is probably much more valid, but I also expect that if you say we'll have this much done by Christmas or whatever, that some manager is going to go, that's not enough. 
you're going to have to do more. And then somebody's going to look at the math, look at the computer and go, okay, we'll do more. <laughs> yes. People's bias and, you know, they all believe they're the unicorn that's going to magically get it all done. I can't change that. All I can do is <laughs> you're gonna bring try facts. to show, facts try to be argument. Whatever. as realistic as possible about things and taking the guesswork as much as possible out. Okay, but from a coaching perspective, yes. how do you social engineer this or how do you have this conversation? Because people do get... I mean, the numbers are important, but they disregard them all the time. I mean, that's why all of us do things that are bad for us. We know that statistically, if you do this, you're going to get this disease or this disease, and we all believe that we're not going to get it anyway. So right. how do you explain to a manager, you need to pay attention to the computer? Uh, well, there's an educational piece, obviously. You have to educate them on why this is beneficial over using story points and um, how it will help them actually communicate to other people because it will. And you can do things like create real service level agreements based off of this data. So you can say, hey, based off of our actual, our cycle times for, and throughput for all of our work, you know, we can create an SLA saying that, you know, 95% or 85% of whatever our SLA is from the data, whatever percentile you want to use. Yeah. 85% of the time we're saying we can get it done here or 95%. And that won't be guessing. That will just be based off of real data. Okay. So that's good. That's powerful for like a support team or a Kanban team, like using it for an SLA, right? Now, are you, are you then tracking to see, um, you could say we can have this much done by Christmas. Are you also tracking to see if you actually hit that? Yeah. Um, so there's, there's a, there's a, there's a, um, something that I'm a big fan of. And that's like looking at, um, imagine if you have, um, going back to scaling for a second, right? Yeah. If you have a program and you have multiple teams of the program and you have features, so let's say in a safe context, right? And you don't have to use safe, but I'm just giving you an example. Sure. That um, features like stories make up features, for example. So, so a, a feature has to be broken down into multiple stories. To be worked on, yeah. Okay. So... So a feature could have 50 stories in it. I'm just throwing that out. A feature would be consumed by a user. The team delivering it would have to break the feature down into stories. Right. So you could have a feature that would be like a login feature, right? Okay. And stories could be I can log in by Facebook and email. And, right. right. A feature would be logging in. Okay. So, um, or sign up, login, slash, whatever you want to use. Yeah. So, um, so at a feature level, right? So imagine if you have a... a um, a, in safe, they call them under release trains, but basically a, a group of teams that are coordinated sure. um, that can work together to release these features. Um, then you could say, hey, what is our whole pro, what is our program cycle time look? And if we take our art, you know, our release chain, and if we take on a new feature as an art, what is our predictability there? Like how long will the whole art take? And then you can scale it. So using the same uh, technique. Right. Okay. Um, so what we do is, um, well, what I encourage basically is to take a look at this stuff, you know, once every six weeks or so, and at a um, more of a high level, program level, um, and leadership level, and say our feature cycle time and throughput is this, right? So we have a bunch of teams working on stuff, but the culmination of work they're working on is taking this long, not just one individual team, you know. Okay. So. And now when you think about it that way, then you can say, why is that? 
Like, because then that conversation is really actionable for the leaders because then they can say, oh, well, there's probably systemic things we can fix. There's probably skill sets we need we don't have, or there's a lot of dependencies that maybe we need to focus on cross-skilling. Maybe we need more training. Maybe we need to change the architecture. Maybe we need to change the way we do software deployment because, you know, it's really manual and it takes a long time or we always find bugs later in the process, things like that, you know? So it's like, it drives the conversations as well. So the, the intent of this is not only for forecasting, but actually actionable things to make improvements with. Okay. Yeah. It's so kind of dual. Set up like a, like a backlog of experiments you want to run to try to figure out how it can optimize. Correct. How much are you getting done correct. across all your teams? Okay. Yeah. Okay, so one of the things that I realized while you were talking, when I initially brought up the thing about, you know, if I have to get to work in 45 minutes, I'm going to leave, what, like an hour, an hour and a half early, that as you were talking through it, I'm thinking like, oh my God, that sounds just like a total waterfall person just saying we should just pad all our estimates. <laughs> but I'm not talking about padding anything. No, but I, but I was, but I was. And the thing okay. that's interesting to me is like, I know better than that, but it's still my tendency. <laughs> This is going back to that that bias thing. Like I I know that that's not a smart thing to do, but I do that. I mean, I go to the airport two hours early every single time, no matter what, just in case. Right. Um, and that's waste that I'm putting into the system in order to make myself yeah. feel more at ease about my travel. And and if you if you put all of your trips into a this tool, right? Yeah. You would probably feel more confident looking at that even 100%. You would say, oh, I have never gotten here any later than this. So I'm pretty confident that I can leave at this time instead of this time. Yeah. So now okay. there's always the rare case, right? <laughs> that, yeah. uh, that something will happen, the apocalypse. But otherwise, you know. Okay. Yeah. Okay. So we're going to use all this stuff to figure out how much stuff we can get done by a certain date and also use it to figure out where we can try to drive improvement in things we're still going to have yeah. to be able to have the conversation about how to trust the computer more than we trust our our gut and our instincts it's all i just i feel like a lot of this stuff i mean everything you're saying makes sense but there's a big part of me that's like we just have to fight our own human nature to be able to be better with estimating yeah so here's the thing or forecasting there's no, no estimates at all in this model Okay, so, so now that's a whole nother can of whoop ass we have to get through. So <laughs> explain yes. explain no estimates to these. I just did. Folks. That's the awesome thing. Because okay. probabilistic forecasting is no estimate, meaning that instead of guessing, you're just using that data and using the, the Monte Carlo um, forecast. Yeah. Okay. And you're saying when we take a work item is whatever the size of it is, meaning and we're always going to focus on breaking things down small. That's a pretty key point. But we don't really care if it's a one, two, or three, right? Because if you look at the data, it all roughly evens up, like over time, actually, as long as they're not wildly different. So okay. what, you can, what, what you'll do is you'll say, uh, okay, so now we're planning our next sprint, right? Give an example. Or we're planning our next release. How many stories or features are in this release? How many stories are in this sprint? What does the data tell us? What, how many likely can we get done based off of historical data? Okay, then that's how many will take unless, you know, people take it off or whatever. Okay. Now, that's from a team perspective, it's easy. From, um, from a perspective of like, if you have multiple teams or if you have a lot of stories or when will this large initiative be done, then you have to 
do some a little more legwork because then you have to combine things maybe or look at a data set of a scale data set of multiple teams if you have multiple teams work on it. And that's what I was talking about with the program level. Yeah, yeah. Yeah. So essentially what you do is you never estimate. You just look at the data and you say, once you have enough data, you need a good amount of data to do this, probably six six months worth of data to be useful. I would say. You could start with three months. Sure. But really for the forecasting thing, you probably need like six months up to so you're just oh. going to kind of stumble along and do your best for the first couple months and, and knowing that when you get to, the, to a certain point, you have enough data that you can start to become. So the, way I, the way I coach it is don't change your current process, right? Okay, so this is good because I have – my next question is yeah. all the stuff that you're talking about yeah. um, is making my brain hurt, and I know how this <laughs> stuff is supposed to work. If, if you walk into an organization that is just moving out a waterfall, like you're still trying to pry the Gantt chart out of their hands, I'm assuming that they're, if you start talking about this, they're going to be like, whatever, dude. Um, I mean, don't you would have to have like your legs up under you. You'd have to know that you'd try story pointing and it wasn't really working out that great. You'd have to have gone through some of the basics of understanding this way of working. You wouldn't just start out with this, would you? You could, you technically could if you never did story pointing, you might not know any different. But okay. but if what I would say is if you're into story pointing, if that's your thing, and I'm not suggesting um, like just quitting altogether. I'm saying this is another way of going about things. There's nothing inherently wrong with story pointing, except I think it's bad for forecasting. That's my okay. So, so um, that's adding risk for the business then. Yes. Right. Okay. So um, going back to what your question was about new people and people that might be reluctant for it. So let's say you have a team or set of teams or programs that is used to using story points for everything and they have their velocity and uh, as, as they should and that's the normal way. Um, and so what I do is I introduce the concepts of the cycle time throughput and work in progress, those three concepts, right? And we say, Hey guys, like, we're just going to track this, keep doing your thing. Right. But in the tooling, we're just going to track it. Meaning, we're going to be a little bit more diligent about updating, like if we're using Jira or some electronic tooling, sure. updating when something goes in progress and when it's finished. We're, we're going to try to do that as close to real time as possible, at least on the same day. You know? Okay. So then if we can do that, then we have all, that's just going to keep collecting the data. Sure. Right? And you can keep going along with your process and almost ignoring it for a while if you want. Think about it. And then after a while, you're going to have a really good data set. And you could start to look at it, and then it's like, okay, well, how can we use this data set? And that's the next question. Another thing you could do before you get to the forecasting part, and you can do this right away in the first sprint you're using from, um, or the first week or whatever you can come on, is you can start looking. So let's take Scrum, for example. Let's say you're doing a two-week sprint. You can look at what our work in progress was this last two weeks and what our cycle time was for each story, right? And what our throughput was per week, for example. Sure. For, for two-week time. And you can say, hey, in our retro, hey, our, our cycle time was like really kind of a lot longer than I thought it would be, and our whip was really high. So next sprint, what should we do? Should we reduce our whip? We should reduce it by one story, two stories. Do we think that's going to move the needle on our cycle time or throughput? And so you can start using it right away in that way. But it's really hard to use it right away for the forecasting part. Okay. So, and th- I think that that's something that a lot of teams would be nervous about trying to. So you're saying that from the very beginning, or maybe the second sprint in, um, 
that the team should begin experimenting with finding its own way of optimizing its whip and, and all these other things and looking at this stuff. Well, like a brand, brand new team. I mean, maybe you just want to as a brand new team. You probably just want working agreements. You want to get to know each other. You want to get used to working as a team, like not as individuals. But you don't know. you, I'm just thinking that that would be very empowering. If you were able to show a new team, like, you know, right out of the gate, like a month in, like, here's some yeah. data. Let's talk about what this could mean. And then instead of just asking them in a retrospective, like what went well, what didn't go well, how can we deliver more value? But also let's look at this and, and let's start to explore how we could kind of Tim Ferriss our team into delivering more stuff. <laughs> Because that's, I mean, that's basically the same, you're, you're, you're hacking your own workflow. And let me say this, it's not necessarily more, but it's sooner. So okay, right. That's the focus. It's not necessarily more output. It's faster time to market. So there's two things that we, that we really focus on measuring. Well, what I'm talking about, the coaches that focus on time to market and that's your cycle time and lead time, right? And we focus on, if you want predictability, that's when it comes to that throughput, a variation of throughput, you want to reduce that. That's one way you can measure predictability. But the third is quality. And you need to measure quality just like you measure um, the time to market because you can get really fast and have the worst quality and there's no benefit to that. Well, maybe there's a benefit at the beginning, but meaning you might learn faster in the market, but over time, you're just going to be accruing so much technical debt and it's going to be a nightmare, right? So... Basically, you want to be measuring your uh, quality metrics, whether that's like escape defects, whether that's defect density, whether, you know, you're talking about what they call lagging quality indicators, like after the fact, looking at it. And also, it's a really good idea to measure leading indicators. So leading indicators of quality might might be um, like unit test coverage, like our continuous, like... um, Every time we integrate, are we creating a new build and are, are all, all our automated tests running once we have units as, uh, you know, things like that and, and looking at the health, health of our continuous integration. And because that will, it's kind of a leading indicator to better quality because we're going to be essentially doing this lean concept of end on cords where it's like stopping the line before we even release anything. You know? Okay. Before, before we put any bugs into production, we're going to find out as soon as humanly possible. And that com- that's what the big advantage of continuous integration is. So, so I would say measure quality metrics, leading and lagging, plus these um, these flow metrics. That's what they're called, flow metrics. And if you have, and you could say, hey, if if we we focus purely on quality, it might take us forever to get anything out the door, right? If we have to just look at every single thing in detail, or what's the trade off? Like, what's the threshold we want to achieve, right? Yeah. Like, we need to get things out the door fast. To be able to pivot, but we also need quality. But we don't need a hundred percent unit coverage, for example. Right? So it's really that conversation that needs to constantly be happening in the retros. Like that's one. Well, know. and probably with the stakeholders too, because wouldn't there be? Yeah. I mean, I, when you were talking about um, maybe initially you're just trying to get stuff up there, there's a business reason why you might be wanting to push stuff out the door, even if it's of a lower quality. Like if you've got to get the thing live so you can announce to the press, like, yes, we met our thing that we said we were going to do. Correct. Yeah. Risk there, but that's a choice that the business could make. Sure. Yeah. Okay. So I think we correct. So, yeah. <clears throat> so that's, that, that's how retros can be very powerful if you use data, like I'm talking about to drive them. Okay. And also use, what I like is um, these hypothesis driven retros, which is 
instead of coming up with just a giant list of improvement items, we come up with like one big hypothesis. We're going to go test this sprint. Not that you can't come up with more, but it's basically like, we believe that if we do X, it's going to move this data point or it's going to make this better. And then the next time we we're going to do it in a sprint and then we're going to meet up and determine if, if like when we were we right or wrong on our hypothesis and do we need to pivot or do we need to keep going or, you know, you can make it almost continuous too, depending on the subject, which is pretty cool. I think that's pretty cool. So are you going to be using like experiment maps and stuff to figure this out or how are you going to? Uh, you could, you could get as complex as you want. You can add as many tools as you want. For me, it's, Hey, here's what the data is telling us, right? Okay. Um, where do we want to be next sprint or next quarter or whatever the time frame is, right? Okay. Well, we'd like to be next sprint instead of having our 95 percentile cycle time 16 days, we'd like it to be 12. Okay. All right. So how do we get there? And, and it says, oh, you're going to have a bunch of ideas, right? So then you could say, all right, well, so let's say one of the ideas is pair programming. And let's say the team doesn't pair program, right? So then you could say, all right, well, you guys have never programmed before. So what is your hypothesis about pairing? And well, we believe that if we start pairing, we'll reduce our whip and we might increase our quality. So, and how are we going to measure ourselves in that? Well, we're going to measure ourselves by some quality metric maybe and, um, and our cycle time. We're going to look at it the next couple sprints and just review it every retro and see if we're moving the needle or not. Right? So it's just like a coming up with hypothesis and testing them as a team for improvement ideas. Well, and I think another reason this yeah. is important, like let's say you're doing yeah. Kanban and all they've read is a David Anderson book and they can see, well, David Anderson's teams achieve this level of flow or whatever like that. So we should, we should do the same, but you're not David right. Anderson and your team's not the team that he had. So <laughs> right. measuring yourself against something that was so incredible that it got put in a book seems a little unfair. Correct. Or yeah. unsound. Yeah. Okay. So we don't have to be perfect. We just got to be better. That's better than we were yesterday. Yeah. Yeah. Um, <laughs> so, yeah, that's it. If, if we're talking about doing this at the team level, could an organization also do this type of tracking at the strategic level? Like they've got these big things. I mean, like big, big strategic initiatives. Could they track this for those types of things as well? Yes. In fact, at my current client, we do. We track portfolio program teams. Flow wow. Okay. This is really cool. In the tooling. Uh, and um, so what maybe what we'll do is I'll send you a link to an, like if you just want to get started, right, for free, like without having to pay for any tools, there's yeah. an Excel sheet offered by this gentleman named Troy McGinnis. Another guy named Troy. <laughs> gentleman and, named um, Troy and, So <laughs> hold on a second. Yes. Because Troy, I heard somebody refer to Troy as like the national treasure of Agile. Like Troy is not just this gentleman. Troy is an amazing man. And <laughs> those of you who aren't familiar with Troy and Focus Subjective, Troy's mission on earth is to make math less scary for adults. And he has created tons of crazy tools. And when you started talking about this stuff, I was thinking about teams with all different types of, of metrics and things like that, different ways of measuring their work. And I know Troy's got a tool that'll help you forecast this stuff. Yep. That's so the first thing I do when I go into clients, I use Troy's tools because I have no barrier to entry when it comes to tooling or cost, right? So what I do is I just start looking at the data and I just help like, if I do it myself, or I have Scrum Masters, you know, I work with them. And we put the data in the Excel sheet and then we look at the data and now we don't have to pay for anything. There's, we can just use it right away, right? And yeah. then once they see the value in it, then they can start looking at, oh, okay, maybe we need an automated tool for this. Okay. 
So what if, I mean, you mentioned like the Reinertson book and stuff like that. If, if I'm in an organization and, and they just listen to this podcast and they're like, oh, this sounds pretty cool. I feel like I need to understand it better before I start trying to do it. Do you, is it, is that they should go to this actual agile metrics book or is there something else like some kind of. So for probabilistic forecasting, um, the two best books I would suggest for that because they're the easiest to read. Like they're the easiest, they're explained the best I've ever seen as far as easy to understand. Okay. Um, And that's actionable agile metrics for predictability. That's what the first book is called. And the second book is called When Will It Be Done? And they're both by a guy named Dan Vacanti who co-created the Kanban software process with um, David Anderson. Okay. And and not that Reinerson's not going to be awesome, but that's going to be like pretty heavy for somebody who's new to this stuff. Correct. Reinerson is, I would say do that after. And Reinerson is not necessarily about probability forecasting, but it's more about the mathematics of flow in general. Okay. Yeah. Cool. This was awesome, man. I really appreciate you doing this. And it was fun, fun talking about this stuff. Um, if people want to get in touch with you and, and ask you some follow-up questions about this, what's the best way for them to reach you? Uh, okay, so you can reach me at um, Agile Uprising, so coalition.agileuprising.com, and I'm on Twitter at G4S Troy. But I'll warn you that um, I only post about Agile stuff once in a while. So, <laughs> But if you want to follow me, you know, feel free. Cool. All right, dude. Thanks a lot for doing this. This was really great. Thank you very much. I, I enjoyed uh, enjoyed the conversation. Mm-hmm.